You're listening to Hear This Idea, a podcast showcasing new thinking from top academics at the University of Cambridge and beyond. In this episode, we explore productivity, specifically on how to form good habits and plan effectively. We speak to Neil Nanda, a final year maths undergraduate at Trinity College, Cambridge. Not only is Neil incredibly smart, topping the maths tripos two years in a row and winning a gold medal at the International Mathematical Olympiad, but Neil also recently gave a workshop series on how public rationality can help us improve ourselves. And this is what we discuss here. This is definitely a much more practical episode than usual, but we make sure to touch on several academic papers in both psychology and behavioural economics throughout. As a little disclaimer, we actually recorded this episode back in March, when things were still mostly normal, but there are many more reasons why self-improvement is a particularly interesting topic now. If you're anything like us, you might find that working or revising from home can make it all too easy to procrastinate. Or if you're using your time in self-isolation to try and learn a new skill or exercise, you may find it hard to keep yourself motivated every day. In such cases, being able to form good habits and plan effectively is tremendously useful. Neil mentions, in fact, that it's much easier to form a habit when your life is quieter and more consistent. So quarantine might actually be the perfect time to apply what we talk about in this episode, and it could yield benefits that last well beyond that. As with every episode, we also have an extensive write-up on our website, including a summary of all the main points made and links to further readings. We really recommend you check these out. But without any further ado, here's the episode. Hi, so I'm Neil. Um, I'm currently a third-year mathematician here at Cambridge, uh, my final year of my bachelor's. Um, I'm friends with both Finn and Luca, and I like to think a lot about, like, my personal productivity and my goals and how I'm living my life and how I can do this better. And I'm here to talk a bit about that. Cool. So, uh, as said, we're here to talk about two things in particular, uh, habits and planning. But this kind of fits into the more general theme of taking productivity as something you can systematically improve. Um, What interested you in that and uh, how did you get to to be so interested in it? It just seems kind of self-evidently obvious to me that you should care about productivity and just generally how you're living your life. I have goals and I have things that I value. Every day I'm taking actions that can bring me closer or further from these. Mm. And if I can find ways of taking the actions that get me more of what I want, I'm kind of an idiot for not doing that. I personally also just find this kind of like an interesting thing to think about. Like I like the idea of becoming a better version of myself. And I find this quite a emotionally compelling thing to think about. Um, so some listeners might, might be very interested in this idea at the moment um, with exams coming up. <laughs> and generally when we talk about productivity, we kind of always frame it in the idea of work, um, you know, being able to make better output or performing better at your job. But you um, are interested a lot in as well as, as you kind of mentioned about improving yourself as a person and more, more generally. Can you kind of talk about that uh, a bit as well? Basically everything we ever do is some form of achieving goals. And I think that trying to put some thoughts on a more meta level about how you're living your life can be really valuable in pretty much all spheres of it. I'm definitely not saying that people should stress about every aspect of how they live their life or feel bad if, say, they go to a movie and it's not the optimal movie they could have been watching. But I think that there's often ways you're living your life you can make a lot better. So, for example, when I first started at Cambridge, I didn't really feel like I had as many friends as I wanted to have. And... I definitely um, wouldn't advocate something like go and meet people and ruthlessly optimize the interaction for becoming (laughs) friends with them. But things like 
just making a point of going out to more events, going to lots of random societies I wouldn't normally go to, to broaden the like set of people I would ordinarily meet were really effective. And I now feel very happy with the amount of people I know and value in my life. And I think I generally find this mindset of practicing kind of rationality and thinking about how I live my life and how to make it better. The kind of skill where practicing it in specific settings like exams can just help me pay more attention to how I live my life generally. And I definitely feel much, much happier with where my life is than where I was several years ago, in large part as a result of thinking through this kind of thing. You shouldn't think about how to optimize every last detail. My mindset is that you have like a certain amount of energy for thinking about your life and how you're living your life and trying to spend it on every last detail is like not really achieving your goal, but trying to focus on, focus on the important things, like think about the things you really value. For me, these are things like friendship, learning, relaxation and taking breaks, uh, like the entertainment I have in my life. Thinking about what you do there and whether there are ways you can make it better or things you do that you don't actually enjoy that much, I think can be really valuable. We're going to be discussing about what methods you found useful, um, but it is very much the case that a lot of this is kind of um, experimenting and finding what works for you. Um, how did you get to the place where you found out that uh, this is kind of the set that works for you and what kind of resources did you use to, to get to that? I first off definitely think that experimenting is the right mindset to have. I think this is another thing that people really neglect when trying to think about their productivity and generally about their life. It's really easy to say, find a way of learning where you say, have a part of flashcards you're gonna go through, and this is just how you revise. And the idea of doing something different, like maybe you should read through your notes or like do some exercises rather than flashcards, feels kind of off-putting because that costs a lot of time. And I think this is a systematic bias that prevents people from achieving their goals because there's a lot of value to the information you get when you try something new. If you're gonna spend, what, like a thousand hours over the course of your Cambridge career learning, uh, probably a, quite a lot more than that, finding a better system that can get you, say, 1% better mm. is worth like 10 hours of additional productivity. And so it'd be worth, easily worth like five hours of trying a new system that may or may not work. And I think it's really easy to neglect that kind of thing. I'm gonna talk about what works for me, but I think the real lesson to take from this is not do what Neil does, it's, I should try new things because I have a systematic bias against like exploring as much as I need to. And what works best for different people varies a lot. You should just try a lot of things, experiment, and see what works best for you. Because I think there's massive variation in how effectively you can learn from different methods. Great, so now we'll zoom in on talking about building habits. So first of all, what do you mean by a habit? What I mean by habits is building this kind of reflex. Um, where some kind of trigger happens and you take some kind of action in response and where it happens automatically, where it doesn't require you to be paying active attention or trying really hard. These like mental reflexes aren't things that come from my conscious analytic mind. They're things that come on a kind of a reflexive gut level. Just in a conversation, I hear somebody say something and I feel a reflex to repeat it back to them. And this is something I've built with practice. And I think that the fact that this is reflexive is really important because it can be hard to be paying attention to all of these details just in everyday life. But when something becomes automatic, you don't need to be paying attention to it. It will just happen. 
and you'll get all of these benefits you could get from applying effort without needing to apply your attention to this to free it up for other and more important things. So let's just drill down on this. What exactly does a habit look like in practice? Could you maybe give some examples? It's going to be a bit of a tangent, but I think that's quite a useful analogy here, which will make sense by the end, so bear with me. <laughs> um, so about 100 years ago, some scientists were researching a particular type of wasp, and they noticed it had some peculiar behavior because this wasp would go out and find some prey like a cricket, sting the cricket to paralyze it, and then drag it back to its burrow. But rather than drag the cricket inside the burrow where there could be like a predator or there could be some kind of blockage where you wouldn't want to be dragging a heavy prey behind you, it would drop the cricket outside, go inside the burrow to check, come back out, and then drag the cricket in when it knew it was clear. And scientists were really confused by this because this seemed like really intelligent behavior. This is a wasp. Wasps don't really have large enough brains to do what we imagine should be intelligent behavior. So they decided to run, run an experiment on this, where they took the cricket that the wasp had left outside the burrow while the wasp was inside and moved the cricket like 10 centimeters away. And now when the wasp got out, it said, hmm, I don't have a cricket, so I need to go find some prey. It flew off, it picked up the cricket that it had previously paralyzed, took it back to its burrow, and then went inside the burrow to check again. Um, and if you're thinking of the wasp as like an intelligent agent, this makes no sense because it knows the burrow is clear because it checked it like a minute ago. It becomes a lot clearer when you understand the wasp is following a kind of simple if-then pattern. If I'm dragging cricket and I reach burrow, drop cricket, then go inside. If I emerge from burrow and cricket is outside, then drag the cricket inside. And these kind of simple if-then rules are incredibly easy to like biologically hard code into a mind, but they can replicate this seemingly incredibly intelligent behavior of go inside burrow, check, once I've detected the no predator, then come outside again. I think that this simple if-then structure is the key thing that I mean when I talk about habits. And I think that if you look at human minds, we also have a lot of behavior that basically boils down to an if-then pattern, or um, what I prefer to call a trigger action pattern. When I unlock my phone, the trigger, then open messenger, the action. Even things that seem a bit less obvious, I think can be boiled down to this. Like when I feel a bit kind of stiff, I'll like get up and stretch. There the trigger is noticing the sensation of being a bit stiff and the action is get up and stretch. There are simple things like trigger, I enter my room, action, I take off my bag. I'm not thinking when I do any of these things, these just happen automatically. I think that understanding this structure is really valuable because this can help you unpack uh, like behavior you see into the kind of atomic trigger then action. And another general note I'd wanna make is, I think it can be easy to confuse habits with what I call systems. People might refer to something like, I go to the gym once a week as a habit. That's not what I mean when I'm talking about habits here. While something like, I notice that I feel a bit kind of weak or like antsy because I haven't exercised enough, then go to the gym would be a habit. A habit is characterized by being something like automatic and reflexive and not needing your attention. I choose to refer to things like go to the gym on a regular basis as a system. And I think these are two incredibly useful but different things and it's worth making this clarification. 
Got it. So the WASP example shows us two things about habits. One is that they're not willed. Mm -hmm. They're not effortful. And the other one is that they're not, they don't involve reflection. They're kind of dumb in that sense. Um, that's what makes a difference from systems because if I really want to go to the gym, it might still take a lot of planning, a lot of effort to like decide when to go and to get myself to go. The great thing about having a habit, on the other hand, is that it doesn't take thinking or effort to move from the trigger to the action because it's more hard-coded. Um, that can also be a bad thing. If you've got a bad habit, you can realise it's bad, but because it's not something you kind of reflect about before doing it, and because it doesn't take any effort to do it, it's really easy to get stuck in them. But that's the shape that habits take. Let's just talk about these trigger action patterns. What exactly is going on there? The reason I'm trying to extract out this core structure of trigger then action is, um, and the reason I think thinking about habits is important in the first place, is these are things that you can deliberately learn. I think this is something that should hopefully feel fairly intuitive because there are so many habits in our life that we've accidentally learned. When I leave my room, lock my door, I think is a habit that hopefully a bunch of people have learned, and I guess many people haven't learned. But we kind of learn these without really thinking about it. I think understanding this structure is really important for learning it effectively. And the key thing I want to extract out is that um, a habit or a trigger action pattern is something that's extremely concrete and specific. Now I want to talk a bit about how you actually do form them. So you want to find a clear trigger and you want to find a clear action. And you want these to both be as concrete and specific as possible. One way I like to think about it is a trigger is something that kind of shifts you from the default state to doing something else. Like a trigger isn't something that's kind of mild and in the background, like the room is slightly cold. The trigger would be notice that I feel cold and put a coat on. It's like the thing that shifts me from my default to doing something differently. So you want a trigger to be as visceral and concrete as possible. A trigger can be something that's really familiar, like tying it to a location you go to all the time, like your room or the library, something where you really know what it looks like and there's a lot of detail attached in your mind to it. I find it much easier to think about something to do something when I enter my room because that's exactly the same every time rather than say like go through an arbitrary door. And this is again the core theme that this thing should be reflexive and having something be really familiar and the same every time is important for helping it be reflexive. A trigger should be concrete. Um, like it should be clear to you when a trigger happens. Something like a trigger like it's 7 p.m. is a terrible trigger because even though it being 7 p.m. is a clear thing, there's not some ping in my mind that happens when it's 7 p.m. while um, setting an alarm to happen at 7 p.m. might be an excellent trigger. Right, so um, the, the failure mode mm -hmm. for triggers here is when they're not obvious and they're not concrete. So for instance, if I don't want to spend so much time on my phone before I go to sleep, a really bad trigger would be like noticing that I've spent too long on my phone or just um, when I've spent too long on my phone or you know, if I don't want to eat so much like chocolate, a bad trigger would be um, when I eat too much chocolate, right? So it's by making it concrete and specific and noticeable. Um, and the same applies for actions as well, right? Yeah, exactly. I think um, with actions, that can be even more the case. 
So my general rule of thumb is a good action for a trigger action pattern you're trying to learn is something that you can always do and do in under five seconds. You want to have like an immediate feedback loop from trigger happens to doing the action. So a terrible action might be when I notice that it's cold outside, um, when I'm walking back from lectures, then when I get back to my room, put a jumper in my bag. Like there's a several minute gap. And so there's a lot of room to just forget about it. This isn't the kind of thing that can happen reflexively in the moment. While a good action might be pull out my phone and set a timer for myself. They'll go off when I'm in my room to put a jump in my bag because that's something that you can do instantly. Another thing people really often get wrong is you want the action to be something you can do without thinking. Mm. So you want it to be as kind of simple and concrete as possible. The action shouldn't be, it, you shouldn't do something like when my Pomodoro timer goes off, take a break. You do something like when my Pomodoro timer goes off, shut my laptop lid because taking a break is kind of a vague and fuzzy thing. Like you need to think about what this actually means and what you're actually doing while shut my laptop lid is something I can do in under five seconds without thinking. I guess it also has to be bite-sized. It has to be atomic and small enough to do quickly because even if you have a really clear trigger, but your action is like do a run or go to the gym for an hour, that can be quite daunting. If your action is something like um, get change, put your trainers on, um, walk to get the gym keys, that's really doable. And then you can start chaining those habits. Can you just explain what that idea means? So I've been emphasizing this idea that habits should be kind of as small and concrete as possible. And when you're trying to think about habits you want to form in your life, it can often be hard to find things that easily fit the paradigm of being small and concrete. Like you want to achieve big changes. I think the right mindset for a habit is... A habit should be kind of a small nudge. A habit should be something you can always do. One weakness of this is if something's a small nudge, when you really want a big nudge, uh, it's gonna be harder to achieve the changes you want. Chaining several habits together can be a really good patch for this. Um, for example, um, I might wanna have a, a trigger action pattern or tap of when I enter my room, then um, go to the gym. But this is way too complicated. Um, while something like when I use my room, look at my gym shoes. It's something I can always do. And then I can train a second tap of look at my gym shoes, then pick up the gym shoes. A third tap of when I picked up the gym shoes, go and collect my bag. And then when I collect my bag, go walk outside. I think um, thinking about things like morning routines can be good inspiration here. I generally find it much easier to keep to a routine when I always do things in exactly the same order. I get up then I brush my teeth, then I shower, then I get changed. Like, having things go in a clear sequence. One of the underlying mindsets here is, because these are things that happen reflexively, these are, these are things where you don't want there to be any decision points or any room to kind of engage your thinking mind, procrastinate, mm -hmm. come up with clever arguments why you don't need to be doing this. And so minimizing the amount of thought required is really important. And things like, the order you do things in or exactly what to do are like a decision point. And having a clear chain of what you're doing can be a way to get around that. Um, another important point is you want a habit to be something you can always do. This is kind of like the point of a habit. It's a reflex that you can do without thinking. And so if there's something that sometimes you're not, you shouldn't be doing, then you just 
like that's not a good habit. It's not going to stick. So for example, sometimes when I enter my room, I might not want to go to the gym, but I can still look at my gym shoes. Like this is still a thing that I can do. And so on the days when I will decide to go to the gym, I'll still have this habit ingrained. While if I don't do it 20% of the time for good reason, then it's not going to stick anywhere near as well. One mindset I find kind of helpful for this is the point of building a habit isn't to shape my life in the short term, it's to shape my life in the long term. Going to the gym a little bit more often for a week isn't actually a big deal. Um, doing it really often, doing it a bit more often over the next five years is a big deal. And so the mindset of thinking about habits shouldn't be what's important right now, it's how is this going to help my future self in the long term? So for example, if you've actually built the habit, if you start skipping it, it's really likely that it's going to die. I've seen studies that have shown that if somebody skips, um, skips something once, they might have like maybe a 10% chance of filling the habit. But if they skip it twice in a row, that goes up dramatically to something like 40%. So a useful mindset is just, you just don't skip a habit twice in a row unless you just want to get rid of the habit. Because the point of building a habit is this long-term thinking. And so you want to think about this now when you're building the habit to find something you can always do. Okay, so let's tie this all together now. It'd be useful to hear just one example where you're using this trigger action pattern to build a habit. So could you give an example and explain how to do that? Sure. Firstly, you want to figure out what you actually want to achieve with this habit. Going with the theme of what I've been saying so far, you might want to do a bit more exercise. A habit should be kind of like a small nudge that pushes you in the right direction. So I might decide when I get to my office, I want to take the stairs more often than I take the lift. Currently, by default, I just take the lift and don't even think about it. Like, if somebody tapped me on the shoulder as I entered the building and said, you should take the stairs, I probably would, but I don't remember it. This is, this is a really good thing to build a habit for, because this can help me manage my attention and think about something at the right time better. The behavior change I want is take the stairs when I enter my building. Now I want to find a trigger. Entering the building is a good start, but a trigger should be as concrete and visceral as possible. I'll instead do, when I open the door to my office, like when I push open the door, I feel the cold metal of the door handle, I feel the kind of resistance as the door's a bit heavy and I push it open. You want this to be something you can like really clearly visualize in your mind because I think what's going on beneath the surface is when you have the habit, you're kind of noticing the trigger happening and then reflexively doing an action. So you want the trigger to be as noticeable and clear in your mind as possible. I have this trigger of pushing open the door and I want to find an action. And naively you might think an action like take the stairs would be good, but you don't always want to take the stairs. Um, maybe I've hurt my foot recently or just I'm a bit tired or I'm in a massive rush. In that case, I wouldn't want to take the stairs. And so the habit of um, trigger, open the door, action, take the stairs, I think wouldn't be something you can do consistently. But something like look at the stairwell would be something I can do consistently. Like I can look at the stairwell and then decide to take the lift, but looking at it serves as a reminder and kind of a engage my conscious mind signal. And I can do this even if I know that I'm not gonna take the stairs, just as part of like building the habit and the good reflex. Um, summarize, the trigger would be entering my office and pushing open the door. The action would be 
turn my head and look at the stairwell. And the desired behavior change would be taking the stairs more often. And this habit would serve as a small nudge in that direction. Great. So to reiterate, you have like a big goal or aim, something like study for exams, um, get fitter, eat healthier. Then you break it down into little um, smaller kind of sub goals or habits. You think about how they might be broken down into really concrete and specific habits, which can maybe be chained together. And then for each smaller habit, we come up with a clear trigger, which leads to a specific and small action. Yeah, and I think um, the really important second half of this entire discussion is how you actually build these habits. The core mindset here is building familiarity. To pick a pretty topical example of a habit I'm currently trying to build, every time I enter my room, go wash my hands, which I think is a pretty sensible precaution for everyone to be taking, given the current coronavirus situation. The key is I want this to be kind of as clear and familiar in my mind as possible. So I just want to practice doing this a lot of times. Our minds are really good at pattern spotting and kind of recognizing patterns from data. So just giving my mind a lot of data of when I enter my room, I go wash my hands can help make this stick. And so once I've designed the habit, I'm just going to physically practice doing this 10 times in a row. Like just enter my room and go to the sink and turn the tap on. And then just go back outside my room and then go into my room and then go to the tap and turn it on again. And do this 10 times in a row. Like 10 is an arbitrary number. And doing this can seem a bit silly, but this is actually really important for making it clear to your reflexes that this is, this is the reflexive action you are taking. Like you're building familiarity in your mind. And then giving yourself reminders, like putting a post note on your door saying, go wash your hands. So that even if you, the habit hasn't quite stuck, that can help you remember and then do this habit. Mm -hmm. This is the kind of thing where if you do just genuinely do this for say the next few weeks, it will really stick. Frankly, I think washing your hands every time you get in your room is just a pretty awesome habit to have in life generally. So far, we've talked about habits, uh, which as you've mentioned, are these reflective and atomic uh, kind of actions that we're taking. Uh, what I want to talk about now is planning, which is almost the opposite of it. Planning is much, much large scale, and it does require conscious thought. I first want to kind of define my terms here. I think that when people hear the word planning, it's really easy to frame this in terms of this only applies to things like a big project or something which is complicated, where I need to sit down and come up with a concrete plan. But I think it's more useful to think of planning as just any time you ever want to do something in the future, this is something you're planning for. And quite a lot of the time, your plan is just hope it happens on its own and don't really think about it. But that's still a plan. I think it's really important to think about things like how you plan future actions, because most plans fail at the point where you don't even think about them and where you don't even take any action to make sure it actually happens. Like, any time you've known you have a supervision deadline coming up and been like, ah, I'll get that done in time and then not, that's an example of failing to plan. Um, just because you didn't put any thought into making sure it happened doesn't mean it wasn't something you made a plan for. It was just a terrible plan. Planning is the art of looking at things you want to happen and both making sure they happen and making sure they happen well. To begin our conversation, I want to start by framing kind of our motivation here. Um, because when we look at the real world, 
um, whether it be uh, people planning their revision plans or uh, governments planning these huge infrastructure investment, one very obvious conclusion is that we're actually very bad at planning. Uh, can you talk a bit about this? There are two ways to think about um, kind of future events. There's what I call the inside view. This is looking at kind of my intuitions for the situation, like how special I think it is. Things like, I really care about getting this work done, so I'm definitely gonna make sure it happens. Are like core parts of thinking from the inside view. And there's what I call the outside view. This is kind of zooming out from my perspective and just saying, for example, look at the last 10 problem sheets I had to do. How many of them had I completed by the deadline? Or how long did it take me to do for each of those? Look at the average of that and just say, this is my kind of base rate for how long this is going to take. This is just like my guess. I think this is a really useful distinction to make when planning because it's really intuitive to slip into the inside view. We, we have a lot of biases um, when we're thinking about planning and future events, as I assume any student who's ever had a deadline knows. It's really hard to act accurately plan how long it's going to take you, and it's really easy to be optimistic about it. For example, there's this common bias called the planning fallacy, where we think we're leaving margin for how long something is going to take, but actually we're kind of just implicitly assuming that everything is in the best case scenario. Nothing's going to go wrong. Nothing's going to take longer than we think it is. One mindset I quite like here is called Hofstadter's rule that says everything always takes longer than you think it does, even after accounting for Hofstadter's rule. <laughs> it's incredibly hard to actually think about how to plan well. In part, that's because our minds are really biased about this, and we're kind of mired within our own perspective, trying to zoom out and avoid our biases with this notion of the outside view or the base rate, and just looking at past data can be a way to escape this. And I don't think you should completely ignore what you believe on the inside. If this essay is really important to me, I'm probably gonna work harder on it, but it's really easy to overestimate how much of a difference that makes. And I think that one approach to things like forecasting time well can be start with this base rate, collect data and start with this average, and then think about how special I think this particular thing is, and like maybe adjust it plus or minus an hour accordingly. But remember that a lot of the previous things that I screwed up were also things where I thought this was special and I thought I was gonna take it really seriously, and I didn't. And that my intuitions now aren't a good guide to the ground truth here. Let's think about becoming better planners then. So you have uh, got this algorithm uh, that uh, I would like you to, to unpack here that can help us uh, think of being able to become better planners and find that right mix between this internal and external view that, that you described. Sure. Before I get properly into this, there's a, pretty, there's a really valuable idea um, from a psychologist called Daniel Kahneman about how our minds work that I think is useful context here. So I'm going to briefly explain that before going into detail about planning. Kahneman draws a distinction between what he calls system one and system two. These are two different parts of our mind. System one is kind of our fast, intuitive, reflexive thinking, like reacting to emotions, using intuition, feeling imp impulses. And system two is our more kind of slow, logical, measured mind. When I'm kind of thinking, I'm in a very verbal headspace, like. My, my mind contains words. There's like an internal narrative. I'm reasoning logically about things. This is all system two thinking. But 
there's also a really big part of our mind that's more kind of intuitive, fast-paced, reflexive. And a lot of cognitive biases aren't something you'll really understand if you're only thinking of your mind as like a verbal stream of consciousness. You need to look at this like big part of your mind called system one and understand how that works and how it affects how you think. I think it can be easy to first encounter this kind of distinction and say, system one means irrational. Um, this is like silly, reflexive. It doesn't know what it's doing. I should ignore it. But I think that's an incorrect way of thinking. For example, a lot of my social intuitions come from my system one. I couldn't verbally write down a description of how to answer a question on a podcast, but I'm talking right now, I'm, I'm thinking about my answers, and all of these things like tone of voice, how I word things, exactly how I structure things, are just kind of happening automatically. My impulses for what is and is not appropriate to say are just things that are mostly happening without me really thinking about it. And I think that there's a ton of value to this. And you couldn't really function in the world if every single thing you did had to be carefully measured and considered. So with that tangent aside, I think this system one, system two thing distinction is really valuable to inform how to plan well. I think it's really easy to plan with your system two, to just think on like a kind of verbal level, how long will this essay take? Eh, probably three hours. I can start three hours before the deadline. This is fine. And there are a bunch of implicit biases in here. Like we're biased towards being a bit optimistic, but this is like in a very verbal headspace. While there's another part of our mind and part of our system one that I call my inner simulator. This is a bit of my mind that's really good at kind of just predicting what the world will look like. One example I find quite visceral for this is if I imagine walking up behind a good friend of mine and pouring a bucket of water over their head and I try to imagine how they react, I can kind of get like a pretty visceral internal picture of like they'd be kind of surprised and a bit angry and then kind of laugh because one of my, like the friend I have in mind is kind of like that. I actually encourage any listeners curious to understand more what I mean, to just pause the podcast for 30 seconds, pick a specific friend and imagine doing this to that friend. And this just isn't something that I could do with my verbal mind. Like I couldn't write down a clear description of how this friend's mind works and how they'd react to a bucket of water for somebody else to think about. This is like a visceral visual part of my mind. And this part of my mind is what I call the inner simulator. It's something where I can try to picture what the world might look like and kind of judge, is this plausible? What do I think would actually happen? I think this is important because I can use it to come up with plans better. So I think it'd be useful to give a concrete example. Let's say I have a job interview with Google next week. I really want to prepare because I really care about this. I know it's going to be a difficult technical interview, so I'm kind of stressing out and reading as much as I can about data structures and algorithms and coding, reading over my CV and my portfolio, um, staying up late, making sure I've got like dotted the I's and crossed the T's. And I think it's going to be like an understandable reflex. Like I'm stressed, I'm kind of trying to plan and I'm trying to do what seems sensible intuitively. But if I engage my inner simulator and I try to imagine the interview happens and then I imagine the interview goes wrong, then it seems much more plausible to me that the interview goes wrong because I got stressed and I stumbled over my words and I screwed something up than that the interview goes wrong because I just didn't know enough uh, like technical stuff. And this can inform how I plan. 
because as a result of this, I can make a point of taking more breaks. Maybe invite a good friend round for dinner just before the interview happens and focus on not thinking about it then. Just trying to get relaxed, get in a good space, maybe watch an episode of my favorite TV show before the interview. And because the biggest failure mode is stress, these things that seem like wastes of time are actually the right thing to do. To extract out the important thing from that example, I have this kind of reflex of stressful thing coming up, I need to prepare as hard as I can. This is not the right action to take to achieve my goals. And way, way more excitingly, I can discover this by just asking myself the right questions, by engaging this part of my system one called the inner simulator, and trying to think about what, what's going to happen and how I can react to it. I think this kind of thing should be really exciting. Like, if you can make better decisions solely within your own head by just asking yourself the right questions, that's an amazing skill. This is something I want to understand and I want to practice, and I want to build to the point where it's a mental reflex. There are two core tools here I want to extract out. The first is that our inner simulator is actually quite good at judging is a world state plausible or not. Like, if I imagine I pour a bucket of water in my friend's head and they punch me, that's weird. Like, my friend wouldn't do that. Like, they're not a violent person. They might be pissed off with me, but they wouldn't attack me. This is like a pretty visceral thing. I would be surprised if my friend punched me. And this emotion of surprise is important for extracting out what is plausible and what isn't. So you can apply this in the context of planning by trying to imagine a world where the plan has gone wrong. Like I, I get to the end of the interview and I just I feel terrible at how that went. That felt like a complete disaster. And I ask myself, am I surprised if this happens? If I'm not surprised, this tells me I need to plan more because it's plausible things could go wrong. One non-obvious thing to highlight there is that the way to engage your inner simulator isn't the way you engage your verbal mind. It's about picturing things, like picturing my friend, playing out a mental video to myself. You want to attach things like sensory detail and concrete details. So the way to actually do this is to come up with like a concrete scenario. I've just set, put down the phone, the interview is over, put yourself in a location, like I'm in my room, think about sensory detail, like I can see the grass of Trinity's playing fields out of my window, I can feel my desk chair against my back. Pay attention to how you might feel emotionally, like I feel a bit stressed, I feel a bit kind of guilty and anxious. And then when you have this visceral picture in your mind, ask yourself, am I surprised if this happened? The second tool, um, and one I highlighted in the example of the job interview, was don't ask yourself what could go wrong. Assume that things went wrong and try to explain what happened. If, uh, if you've ever sent an email and 10 seconds after sending it, you realized, oh crap, I forgot to put the attachment, or I forgot to mention the deadline in this really important email I've sent to like, my director of studies, you kind of know what I mean here. Like, nothing has fundamentally changed about the world, but you've gone from this being a fuzzy future thing to this being a concrete past thing. And our minds cope really well with concrete, explicit scenarios. So trying to use hindsight rather than foresight can be a really valuable thing to do. But the exciting thing I want to highlight here is that you don't need the thing to actually happen in order to get this benefit. 
For example, Gmail's recently put on a undo button, where if you send an email within about five seconds, you can undo it to exploit this exact effect. And you can exploit this within your own mind using what I call pre-hindsight, where you try to imagine viscerally that the plan has failed and ask yourself to explain what went wrong. And in the job interview example, I could do this and realize it was because I got too stressed. Now let's convert um, all these ideas um, that, that you have kind of mentioned into like a clear step-by-step -step guide um, for listeners to follow. Can you really, quick me, uh, really quickly just run me through step-by-step? Um, sure. step. Let's say I want to come up with this new revision plan uh, so that I can get my, my dissertation done. Step-by-step, um, step, how should I be thinking? Sure. So first off, we want to pick the problem. You've already done that. You want to write, you want to spend Easter writing your dissertation. Then you want to make a plan. And you want to make a really concrete plan. You want to have a clear idea of what you're going to actually do. A lot of the failure mode when you're planning things is that you don't even think about it in enough detail to realize what's going wrong. You might say, I'm going to spend 12 hours a day revising. But you're not actually imagining doing that for 12 hours a day. And I think if you did that, you'd probably realize that's not feasible because I don't have the willpower and like the stress levels to actually do this. So make a concrete plan. Let's say I'm going to go to the library for three hours in the morning, have a one hour lunch break, spend two and a half hours in the afternoon, go for a half hour walk, spend another two and a half hours, and then I'm done with work for the day. And I'm going to do this every day over the holidays. Um, and, and that's my, my baseline plan. Yeah, that's your basic plan. I think there's pretty overwhelming amounts of data that people are bad at planning. This is probably going to fail. Now you want to come up with what I call the picture of failure. This is like, imagine a concrete, imagine a concrete scenario where the plan has gone wrong. Like, it's the end of Easter, and you, you're looking at dissertation and you're like a thousand words in. The point to emphasize here isn't that you're coming up with like an explanation of what went wrong. You're trying to visualize a world where you're confident it went wrong. Like, you're in your room, you're at your laptop, you're looking at your dissertation word file, and there's only a thousand words in it. And you want to make this picture as visceral as possible. I recommend picking at least two sensory details. Something you can see, something you might be feeling emotionally, maybe something you can hear, or like the temperature, like mm. can you feel the wind against your skin or anything like that? Um, the point of this is that we want to engage our intuitive system one part of our mind for this and that responds much better to these kind of mental pictures and visceral things than it does to kind of just verbally assume plan fails now you've done this you want to ask yourself am i surprised if this picture of failure comes to pass really viscerally imagine it and say am i surprised and pay attention to this emotion of surprise if you are surprised this is probably actually a good plan congrats but honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if, like, I didn't work on a dissertation over Easter. Like, historically, I don't keep to plans. And on some level, I know this about myself. In that case, I'm going to use pre-hindsight. I'm going to assume the picture of failure happened and try to explain what happened. And honestly, I think what happened is I just didn't leave my room in the morning. I just kind of, uh, like, procrastinated, went on Messenger, was on my phone for a really long time. And going to the library just didn't feel urgent. And I lost several hours every day. Now I figured out what's gone wrong. I need to do something about this. Because my goal isn't understand why I'm going to fail. My goal is not fail. I'm going to try to patch the plan. 
So for example, um, if one of the reasons is not getting motivated or being able to leave my room, um, choosing to explicitly study outside in the library with a friend, and then that would make me accountable and get me more motivated to yeah, do it. Yeah, exactly. Um, some kind of social accountability system. Uh, one thing I've done is I've set up my phone to automatically lock in the mornings at the time when I want to be going to the library to get work done. Because if I can't go on Messenger or do anything I want to do on my phone, then I have less reason to stay in my room. And this has actually been really effective on me. So now you have a patch. But often coming up with a good plan can take several iterations of this. So you want to go through this again. Like go back to your picture of failure, add in this patch, try to viscerally imagine it, and say, am I surprised? If you're not surprised, then use pre-hindsight again. Try to assume failure happens and explain it. And just keep going. I think that the step patch the plan can be hard. The thing I'm focusing on with this algorithm is how to avoid the systematic failures of planning where you have a bad plan, but you don't like notice this. This doesn't mean coming up with a good plan is easy. So some tips for that would be things like set a five minute timer and just spend that entire five minutes thinking about what you think is gonna go wrong and trying to bring some ideas you could do about this. The reason I'm emphasizing setting a five minute timer but I think it can be easy for something to feel like a hard problem and just give up on it, like in about 30 seconds. Five minutes is a surprisingly long time, and I found quite a few problems seemed impossible, but when I thought, when I just actually thought for just five minutes, I could come up with some ideas. Other ones can be things like talk to somebody else. If you also have friends who are interested in like rationality and productivity, it can be really valuable to talk to them about this. And practice helping each other with plans because having an outside point of view can be really useful for noticing creative ideas. Another point where I think some people can go wrong here is it can be easy to think about ways your plans might go wrong and feel sad about this. Like, oh, I'm gonna, I don't wanna think about procrastination because I feel demotivated and weak and I don't wanna acknowledge that like things might go wrong. Um, I think this is not a very helpful mindset because my goal isn't, like, think my plan's going to go well. My goal is my plan to actually go well. And if I notice right now my plan's going to go wrong, that's amazing. Because right now, that's cost me nothing. I can do something differently to prepare for this. Like, noticing a failure in advance isn't a failure. This is a success. Like, you're developing the skill of planning, and you're learning how to better achieve your goals. If we're going to procrastinate, thinking about it now or not doesn't really change anything. But... It can help you like, do what really matters. And I think this mindset of like being excited to understand failure, or failure is not even the right word, understand what could go wrong so you can make it not go wrong, mm. is like actually a thing you should be really happy about. What I really like about this kind of approach as well is that it seems somehow like a little bit counterintuitive when it comes to planning. Um, normally when we think about planning, it's very much about, you know, we try to be as rational as possible and think as logically as possible and get all the facts and, and all of this. But really, um, certainly in the kind of context that we've talked about, um, one big problem to our plans is procrastination and those kind of like system one urges. It might be a good idea to kind of use system one as well to check if this plan is kind of uh, foolproof and, and makes kind of sense. And the, the algorithm that you've kind of outlined um, seems like a good way to, to go about this. Yeah, I think another thing I want to emphasize here is it can be easy to hear an algorithm like this and think, that sounds like so much effort. Why would I ever do that? Like that would just be so annoying to actually do for anything I care about. Or maybe 
only save it for things that feel really important, like a revision plan. I disagree with this mindset because I think that the real reason to care about planning is it's fundamentally about building good mental habits mm. and a good mindset. Like, you can have kind of micro plans. Like, notice you're procrastinating about something and set yourself time to do it that afternoon. That can take, like, under 30 seconds, but might make it a lot more likely that it happens. And practicing this kind of high-effort algorithm can be a good way, good way to get in the habit of planning better. Um, so I think the way we think about this isn't how much do I care about a revision plan? Is it worth the effort? It's how much do I care about becoming the kind of person who does what I want to do? And how much do I care about working towards that? And trying to notice things. Like, again, I think the biggest failure mode with planning is not thinking about your plan at all. Just deciding, I kind of want to do that, and then just never doing it. God knows I do this all the time. But I'm trying to practice things like notice the feeling of saying, oh, I'll get around to it at some point, or noticing when I say, oh, I should do that sometime, and then being like, huh, I'm probably not going to do this. This is a big deal. I want to do something now to make myself actually do it. Or asking yourself in the moment, am I surprised if this doesn't happen? And if you are, if you're not surprised, what can you do about that? Great. So we've talked about effective planning and building good habits as two parts of, or two important aspects of productivity. Um, what I really like is that they're really closely related because you can plan over the long term to build up these habits which take a long time to build, but also you can view effective planning as a kind of mental habit, right? If you do it enough, um, which is nice. One final note with regards to planning is um, I think it can be really easy to hear about meta things like a podcast on rationality and productivity and think, ah, these are some good ideas. I should implement them sometime and then just never get around to it. So I'd challenge any listener who's enjoyed this and think these ideas might be valuable to ask yourself, would I do this? Like, am I surprised if it's two weeks from now and I haven't thought about this at all? If you're not surprised and you think this is useful, is there anything you can do about it right now to make it more likely to happen? Um, and for listeners who do want to do it, uh, if you look at the show notes, we'll include links uh, to um, guides about uh, outlining all the steps that we've talked about. So we've just got two last questions to ask. The first one is, what three books or resources would you recommend to anyone who is interested in learning more about all of this? First and foremost, there's a series of blog posts I found incredibly useful called the Replacing Guilt series. This is about engaging with kind of how motivation works. It's talking about what it calls guilt-based motivation. So these, these are things like thinking about things I need to get done, my obligations, like doing example sheets or responding to messages or emails or just anything I need to do, like preparing for a podcast and kind of just storing it in my mind as an obligation or like a should, something where I'm not paying attention to, I'm not asking myself, do I need to do this? I just need to get it done. I found this um, like a mindset shifting thing to read because I do this to myself all the time. And I think this is a really dangerous thing to do because it's much harder to motivate myself to care about things when I lose sight of why it matters to me. For example, if I'm making myself do an example sheet because I have a deadline on Friday and I feel bad about missing deadlines, that's not, that's not fun. I don't enjoy this. I'm just making myself do it. Well, if I just take a one minute break and just think about why I'm enjoying this course, why is this course fun? 
why do I think doing exometries is a good use of my time? That can make me feel a lot more motivated and have a much better time the next several hours of actually doing work. And I found this blog series of blog posts incredibly useful for thinking about this and coming up with more sustainable forms of motivation. This was especially aimed at members of the effective altruism community. This is a community I consider myself a part of that's very much focused around saying we want to do good in the world and trying to think about how can we most effectively do this and using tools of kind of um, evidence and research for doing this better. And this was kind of framing motivation around how can you kind of sustainably motivate yourself to care about doing good? How can you make this a big part of your life, but make it so you want to make the world a better place rather than feeling racked by guilt about all of the suffering in the world and how you're a terrible person and you don't do anything about it? Finding a kind of healthy mindset for my life generally, but especially about these somewhat guilt-laden things like doing good can be a really, really valuable thing to think about. This is tying in really nicely to one of the episodes we did with George Rosenfeld talking about building a charitable movement. And he was talking about framing charity in terms of positive opportunities to do good rather than getting people to donate money through a feeling of guilt. So I'm glad you mentioned that. Cool. Um, the second resource I want to recommend is um, there's an organization called 80,000 Hours who are also part of this effective altruism movement, who do research into doing good with your career and what are the ways that people can most impact the world through their career. I think this is a really important thing to think about because like, as a Cambridge student, right now I, like, I'm quite busy with my degree. I don't have a ton of things to contribute to the world, but I'm learning a lot of skills. I'm the kind of person who's, um, I think like any Cambridge student is the kind of person who's probably gonna do like quite a lot of exciting things with their life. Like this is one of the most elite universities in the world. So a lot of the way we're gonna impact the world is over the course of our life and kind of what we do with our career because so much of how the world is affected by the rest of our life is our career. The organization is named 80,000 hours because the average length of the career is 80,000 hours, which is insanely long. Right now, when I'm still making my life decisions, I think it's really important to think about things like how can I do good? But also, how can I do good with a career in a way that I want to do? I think it's really easy to frame things as like, I need to sacrifice to do good with my career. I need to accept a low salary at a nonprofit. I need to go work at a charity in Africa, otherwise I'm achieving nothing. This probably just isn't that true. And 80,000 Hours does a really good job of emphasizing this. And the importance of things like finding a job that you does good for the world, but you could genuinely enjoy doing for 80,000 hours. And this idea of personal fit, with that sales pitch aside, the resource I'd recommend is the 80,000 Hours Key Ideas series. It's kind of an article that tries to compress the biggest ideas of 10 years of research into high-impact careers into an article that can kind of just help you think about things, help you help point people in the right direction. And for anyone who's been inspired by this podcast to think about how they live their life, I think thinking about your career and thinking about what you do with your career and how you impact the world and whether there are ways you can make the world a better place without actually sacrificing anything, then I would really highly recommend reading this. And the 80,000 Hours podcast also recently recorded an episode explaining and going through that career guide if you prefer to listen about it than read it. And the third resource I'd recommend is, so there's an organization called the Center for Applied Rationality they run uh, residential workshops 
where um, they go through some of the research that they've done on human rationality and how to live your life in a way that helps you actually achieve your goals, like very much on the same themes that I've been talking about here. The kind of two sections of habits and planning were very, very heavily based on classes at a recent workshop I went to. And they've recently published the their handbook online, which is an incredibly good PDF that summarizes a lot of their ideas and a lot of their core classes. I think it can be hard to really learn rationality and how to think about your life by reading things. It's fundamentally about actions and practicing and building good mental reflexes and habits, but I think it's still useful to read about this kind of thing. And so if you found the themes of this podcast interesting, I'd really highly recommend reading the PDF of their handbook. Neil Nanda, thanks very much for coming on the show. That was Neil Nanda on Forming Habits and Effective Planning. As always, if you want to learn more, you can read the write-up at hearthisidea.com forward slash episodes forward slash Neil. There you will find us go into more detail about all the topics discussed, as well as Neil's reading recommendations. We would also be really grateful if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening to this. If you want to give us any constructive feedback or have any questions at all, send us an email at feedback at hearthisidea.com. We love to hear from you. And of course, if you would like to support the show more directly, you can leave us a tip by following the link in the description. Thank you for listening.